Thank you for downloading this message from Roots Community Church. We pray that you are encouraged by the word. If you are looking for more information, please visit us at rccphoenix.com. Well, we're going to continue on in our series this week called Doing Things God's Way. Now, um, if you've missed the, the last couple of messages, um, you can go back to the podcast and catch them. And you can read 1 Kings chapter 17, because that's kind of the basis of where we've been during the series. And we're actually going to move on to chapter 18. And so at this point in time, Elijah, the prophet, has, uh, has gone down to the brook at, at Kareth, and he's been provided for by the birds. He's moved on from there at God's direction to go stay with this widow woman who cooks him a loaf or, or like, a, like a small patty of bread for him, even though she doesn't have enough for her and her son. <clears throat> God does a miracle. He's providing oil and flour for them so they can be sustained this entire time. And Moses, I mean, not Moses, Elijah steps, uh, steps in and he stays with this family for the duration of the drought. So, at now, at this point in time where we're going to get into this scripture in 1 Kings 18, Elijah, um, or after three and a half years of drought, the Lord instructs Elijah to visit King Ahab and let him know that the Lord will soon be sending rain. So this is all about to be done. <clears throat> and on the way to meet King Ahab, Elijah meets a God-honoring man who worked for the king named Obadiah. Now, Obadiah, you if you... Uh, memorized all the books of the Bible like when you were a kid like I was forced to and then sing it in a song repeatedly at the age of 11 which was loads of fun for me <clears throat> but I'm I, you know that Obadiah is a book in the Old Testament this is not uh, the prophet Obadiah this is somebody else so similar names but different people kind of like me and Matthew McConaughey we have similar names and similar attractiveness levels but we're when you guys laugh like that it hurts my feelings <clears throat> um, I said formally apologize to Mr. McConaughey. Sorry, man, if you ever watch this later. Um, it's just a joke. <clears throat> but, um, but similar, but they're not the same, right? So Obadiah here um, has been working for King Ahab, but there's something peculiar about Obadiah. Now, we know that King Ahab is the worst king Israel's ever seen. He's married the worst queen Jezebel Israel's ever seen. And uh, Obadiah has a unique fit in this relationship. So 1 Kings um, chapter 18, verses 3 and 4, it gives us a little preface about who Obadiah is. It's important because we're going to come back to it here in a minute. So, so Ahab summoned Obadiah, who was in charge of the palace. Obadiah was a devout follower of the Lord. Once, when Jezebel had tried to kill the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had hidden a hundred of them in two caves. He put 50 prophets in each cave and supplied them with food and water. So here is this crazy, wicked empire or king that's ruling over God's people in Israel. And we have Obadiah, who's a God-honoring, a devoted follower to God, working in this environment. So what happens is Ahab says, we need to find water for my, for my livestock. We need to find food for my livestock. So he sends Obadiah out one direction, and he's going to go out another direction. They're going to start looking for water and food for the livestock. They're going to go one direction and the other. So Ahab runs off this direction. Obadiah runs off this direction, okay? <clears throat> so, um, so on his way, uh, Elijah leaves the... Um, Elijah's going to leave the, the house where he's staying. He's going to make his way to King Ahab like the Lord's instructed him to tell him that the rain's about to come. 
And, um, and so he runs into Obadiah. So um, he tells Obadiah, hey, go back and tell King Ahab, go back and tell him that um, I'm coming to see him. And he needs to prepare because the rain's going to come. And so Obadiah freaks out. He says, I am not doing that. I do not want to do that. Please do not ask me to do that. Because if I go back there and, first, and tell him that you're coming, and you don't show for any reason, like you just decide to wait till tomorrow, or the Lord takes you away somewhere, or something happens, <clears throat> um, he's going to kill me. Because he has sent people to every surrounding nation looking for Elijah. He actually went to the kings and the rulers of these uh, other countries, and he's forced them to promise and give their word. They have not seen Elijah. They don't know where he is, because he is looking for him to reverse this three-and-a-half-year drought that has gone on in the land. Elijah talks to, uh, Elijah talks to Obadiah and says, Hey, man, I'm not going to leave you hanging. Go back and tell him. I'm on my way. So Obadiah saddles up, heads back, and tells Ahab, Hey, you'll never guess what happened. I ran into Elijah, and he's coming to see you. <clears throat> so now we're going to read um, 1 Kings 18, 16 through 40. Yes, that's 24 verses for you math whizzes. Um, and I will not apologize for reading the Bible in church. But we're going to read this together real quick. <clears throat> um, it's a great read because it's one of the most iconic stories of the Old Testament. Um, and it actually it talks about a showdown that happens between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And I think someone wrote a song about that a long time ago. Ask my wife later, and she'll be happy to tell you about it. I'm going to get in trouble for that one. It's just a joke, honey. I got jokes today. <clears throat> All right, so we're going to start in uh, chapter, six, uh, chapter 18, verse 16 through 40. So Obadiah went to tell Ahab that Elijah had come. And Ahab went out to meet Elijah. Didn't even wait for him to come. Went out to meet him. When Ahab saw him, he exclaimed, So is it really you, you troublemaker of Israel? I have made no trouble for Israel, Elijah replied. You and your family are the troublemakers, for you have refused to obey the commands of the Lord and have worshipped the images of Baal instead. Now, summon all of Israel to join me at Mount Carmel, along with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who were supported by Jezebel. So Ahab summoned all the people of Israel and the prophets to Mount Carmel. Then Elijah stood in front of them and said, How much longer will you waver, hobbling between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. But the people were completely silent. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only prophet of the Lord who is left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Now bring two bulls. The prophets of Baal may choose whichever one they wish and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood of their altar, but without setting fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood on the altar, but not set fire to it. Then call on the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. The God who answers by setting fire to the wood is the true God, and all the people agreed. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, You go first, for there are many of you. Choose one of the bulls and prepare it. Call on the name of your God, but don't set the wood, don't set fire to the wood. So they prepared one of the bulls and placed it on the altar. Then they called upon the name of Baal from morning until noontime, shouting, O Baal, answer us. But there was no reply of any kind. Then they danced, hobbling around the altar <clears throat> that they had made. About noontime, Elijah began mocking them. 
You'll have to shout louder, he scoffed, for surely he's a god. Perhaps he's daydreaming, or is he relieving himself? Or maybe he's away on a trip, or is asleep and needs to be wakened. So they shouted louder, and following their normal custom, they cut themselves with knives and swords until the blood gushed out. They raved all afternoon until the time of the evening sacrifice, but there was no sound, no reply, no response. And my little ad in there is, no kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Then Elijah called to the people, come over here. They all crowded around him as he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been torn down. He took 12 stones, one to represent each of the tribes of Israel, and he used the stones to rebuild the altar in the name of the Lord. Then he dug a trench around the altar large enough to hold about three gallons. He piled wood on the altar, cut the bull into pieces, and laid the pieces on the wood. Then he said, fill four large jars with water and pour the water over the offering and the wood. After they had done this, he said, do the same thing again. And when they were finished, he said, now do it a third time. So they did this, they they did as as he said, and the water ran around the altar and even filled the trench. At the usual time for offering the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet walked up to the altar and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, prove today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. Prove that I have done all this at your command. O Lord, answer me. Answer me so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have brought them back to yourself. Immediately, the fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven and burned up the young bull, the wood, the stones, and the dust. It even licked up all the water in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell face down on the ground and cried out, The Lord, He is God. Yes, the Lord is God. Then Elijah commanded, Seize all the prophets of Baal. Don't let a single one escape. So the people seized them all, and Elijah took them down to the Kishnan Valley and killed them there. There's a lot going on here in this passage of Scripture. And I could probably spend a month digging all this stuff out of it, which we won't do, so don't. You guys are all right. We're going to get out of here on time. Um, but there's three things that I feel like kind of um, that the Lord kind of prompted me with this week when I was doing this study and that we're going to draw out and kind of focus on when it comes to talking about doing things God's way. This is a wildly impactful, super dramatic, you know, fire falling from heaven, people cutting themselves, you know, dancing around altars and bulls and people watching and mocking someone. There's a whole bunch of going on here, right? So we're going to look at three different things that's going on in this super dramatic portion of the Old Testament account of Elijah. So point number one, doing things God's way requires endurance requires endurance. Now, for the first two messages, we have really been focused on Elijah and um, the widowed woman who um, who fed him, and they, they wound up staying together with their family until the drought was over. We wound up focusing primarily on these two people, and so I want to turn that focus to one other person right now, and that's the person we first started talking about. That's Obadiah. <clears throat> so Obadiah, next line of your notes, is serving the most wicked king in Israel's history. Now, why that's important to stop and pay attention to is because he is also one of the few people left that is still loyal to, serving, 
and devoted to God. He is he has hidden more than and provided for more than a hundred prophets. So what happens is Jezebel gives the word to go kill these, these prophets of God. He hears about it because he is working in the palace. He's working as a representative of the family. And before that order goes out, he goes through the city, sneaks around, tells the prophets, get out, go hide in these caves. I'll have people bring you food. Don't say it was me. And then goes back to work. He is undercover for real. Like, talk about a hostile work environment, right? Like, I hear people talking about, my work environment's kind of tough for me. It ain't like this. He has a firsthand account of just how wicked Ahab and Jezebel are. He sees them doing things opposite of the God that he is devoted to and serving. He is watching them year after year after year do things that are opposite of what God is directing for his people. And he stays in that environment. The reason we're talking about the endurance part of this point of the message is because Ahab reigned in Israel for 22 years. At some point in time, Obadiah is, is, is hired or brought on board and that, and that you know, administration, if we can call it that, to kind of use a word that we're all you know, in, um, familiar with here today. And he works his way up into a position of prominence. This guy who is serving God is working in one of the most evil environments Israel has ever known. And this will cook your noodle a little bit. Ready for this? The next line in your notes. God put him in the middle of evil and chaos. God placed him in the middle of evil and chaos. See, he directed the path of Obadiah, his servant, into this specific crazy place. The Lord didn't go, oh, hey, Obadiah did take that assistant manager job over at the, at the palace. How fortunate for us. Let me see if I can get him to do something for me. No, the sovereign Lord directs him to be in this place for this time. And Obadiah has to have questions. What in the world is going on? Everything opposite of God is happening around me, yet God put me here to what? Watch Israel destroy itself? Why in the world did he put me in the middle of evil and chaos? The reason this is important to focus on because it flies in the face of the, the cultural-influenced um, faith that we have as American Christians. See, our culture... Um, uh, promotes comfort and pleasure as the main pursuits. Why do you want to have a whole bunch of money? So I can do what I want. I don't have to go to work. I can sleep in. I can go, I can go travel. I can go do whatever I want to do. And none of that is inherently bad. But that has become the focus for our culture. And those beliefs have seeped themselves slowly but surely and definitively into the American church. How do I know? You can watch people online go back and forth and say a whole bunch of crazy things, but um, our culture says things like this. Do what makes you happy. 
Who are we to tell others they can't live their own lifestyle? Just do what you want. Whatever that is, you do you, I'll do me, and we'll just, we'll just all be happy and run around here and be fine. And we see these attitudes promoted in people who call themselves Christians and believers in Christ, and they are opposite of Scripture because Scripture says disciples of Christ pursues what the Lord wants. Disciples of Christ submit to His direction. Disciples of Christ deny selfish desires and strive for what God wants. I'm hoping that for anyone who might have an old mentality like I grew up in, I'm hoping that this will bake your theological cake. It'll burn it. God might put you in the midst of an ungodly environment to accomplish His purpose. I thought if I serve God, I get what I want, and I, you know, He gives me the desires of my heart, and I just dream, and I go out there and follow my dreams, and God just puts His stamp of approval on it because I said I slapped the God card on it. Nope. There is a very real possibility if you are going to be serious about following God, and you're going to say, I'm going to do what you want, not what I want, I'm going to be put into the middle of an ungodly environment like Congress. Um, to serve him and accomplish his purpose. Anybody ever said this? And you don't have to admit it because I'll admit it for you because I have. God, I hate this job. Get me out of here. I don't want to be here no more. I sit in the parking lot and cry before I go in. What does it matter? God, I hate it. I hate it. Get me out of here. This is not what I'm supposed to be doing with my life. Take me somewhere else. And the Lord very gently and politely but definitively said, no. I'm going to leave you in the place you don't want to be because there's something that I want to do through this. Can everybody agree that God's good? Can everybody agree that he's not cruel? Can everybody agree he's not on some power trip? He is gracious, loving, and merciful, right? So if we are confident that the Lord has placed us in a specific environment, we need to endure in that place until the Lord directs us to move. That's not going to be fun. Nope. Is all of serving God not fun? No, there's a whole bunch of fun stuff. But we have been pointed, we've had our focus and our attention pointed so much on the, oh yes, you get this and you get this and God will do this for you, that there's no price to be paid anymore. And one of these things, if we're going to do things God's way, is we're going to have to endure through through some things that are not fun. Now, let me step on the other side of that coin and say one thing. This does not mean that we glorify pain or believe that we are in special access to God through acts of discipline. There are some people who think, and I was one of them for a period of time in my life and even in the ministry, that if I, would, if I was asked to do a, a thing and I did it a hard way, or in my mind, I just kind of created the scenario where it would be more difficult to do it this way than this way. I would pick the more difficult way because I was going to prove to God that I was going to earn something from Him, and that is not in Scripture. 
At some point in time, I, I glorified the pain because I thought that if I was in pain and doing something I didn't want, God would look at it and be like, that's my boy even more than when I gave my life to him. But we find in Scripture that's not the case. Paul addresses this directly in Colossians chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. He tells a group of believers in the city of Colossia, he says this, You have died with Christ and he has set you free from the spiritual powers of this world. So why, don't, why do you keep on following the rules of the world, such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? Such rules are mere human teachings about things that deteriorate as we use them. These rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion, pious self-denial, and severe bodily discipline, but they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. Glorifying pain or thinking that if I have to do this the hard way or God's going to run me through this crucible of things, that might happen. But purposely looking for a hard way and slapping God's name on it because you think, oh man, this is how he wants me to do this the hard way. What it is, is it's pious self-denial Severe bodily discipline and strong devotion. And these things do not change our hearts. What they do is they make us look good to the people who can't see what's really going on in the inside. Obadiah examples the endurance perfectly. And it is a prime place to save the life of a hundred of the Lord's prophets. If we're going to do things God's way... There's going to come a point in time where we're going to have to endure. Point number two, doing things God's way requires humility. Earlier in that passage we read, um, Elijah tells Ahab, summon all of Israel to join me at Mount Carmel. And as I read that, I was trying to, I was wondering, I mean, well, you know, Ahab didn't even wait for him to come. He ran out and saw him, ran out and and, and met him on the way. Why in the world does he say, why does he go back to the palace? Why does he go back to to right in the middle of the nation somewhere where he's going to get everybody's attention? He says, no, gather everybody and bring them to Mount Carmel. And And I kind of got hung up on that for a second going, why Mount Carmel? As I began to do my study, I realized something. It's next line in your notes that God chose Mount Carmel on purpose. He chose Mount Carmel on purpose, and here's why. Mount Carmel was a symbol of beauty and fertility to many pagan religions. Many of the nations that surrounded Israel had fallen into all this false idol worship and worshiping false gods and doing these crazy, crazy things. You know, we talked several times about the Canaanites and Molech. We've talked about Asherah and how what they did was they chopped down a tree and leave the stump and then chop all the, the branches off of it and just leave a stump. <laughs> and that was what they worshiped for Asherah, the mother of Baal. And they formed all these false idols of and, and the shape of what they thought Baal looked like and would worship them. And Mount Carmel was lush with green vegetation, and it was naturally beautiful. And it was so beautiful that some of those religions actually um, viewed it as a sacred mountain, and they refused to let common people go there. 
So here this is Mount Carmel. There's the, um, uh, the people, when, I, when you look at the geography of it, there's this, this bank that goes up the side and it has all this grass and this green and, and, and beautiful colors on the, on, the, um, on, on the foliage and stuff that are going up to this mountain. But the most beautiful mountain is most assuredly barren from experiencing no rain or dew for three and a half years. Mount Carmel's not outside the realm of this drought and this once flourishing um, um, vegetative mountain is now like everything else, dry, barren, and dying. See, God brings his people on the top of that mountain and he shows them the barrenness of this holy site for all these pagan religions. And God is showing his people that the false gods they're worshiping are powerless. There is no doubt that the people and the prophets of Baal and Asherah and the people of Israel and Ahab and Jezebel have led all of these worship crusades kind of for Baal and Asherah to end the drought. Let's have some rain. And it never works in the same way that we just read that there was no answer, no response, no sound from Baal. The same thing happens to them year after year, month after month, week after week as they go and pour out their service to this false god. God is showing his people that these false gods are worshiping are powerless and there's one other thing that to me seems a little more vicious, a little more sinister, a little more like, oh man, that one hurts. That's going on here. The false gods of Asherah and Baal have been given credit for God's blessing and provision to his people. These guys are running around 22 years under Ahab, decades before that with these wicked, evil kings. And, and, and they're, they're not doing what the Lord has instructed them to do. They're not following His direction, His commandments. They're not doing any of that. And the God that parted the Red Sea and led them out of the Egyptian captivity, the God that walked them across the desert, made them wander for 40 years, and then, and then led them into the land of the promised land of Canaan and overtake the giants who lived there and set up um, their, their nation in this, this beautiful, lush place. They're looking at Baal and Asher and going, thanks for doing that for us. It's got to be... I know God's not me, and it's a good thing that I'm not God, right? Because for me, if I was God, that'd be a bitter pill to swallow. I have given you everything, and you walk over here, and God uses the, the, the uh, later in Scripture the, the comparison, the analogy, as if he was husband and wife with Israel, and they have left the cheat on him with another lover. God's communicating the depth of what, what's being done to him by them. And as I read that, I had to ask myself a question. Have I ever given credit to anything other than God for his blessings and provision for me? 
Have I ever been so arrogant to think that the things that I have, the opportunities that have been opened, the doors of opportunity that have been, that have been, uh, that I've been led to were the product of my own effort? And if I'm completely transparent and honest with you, I have to say yes. There's been moments where I've thought that. I've thought, man, I'm doing pretty good here. Flew to Nashville and talked to this guy. Met with this guy and this guy helped us get all out into the music and the stores and all this kind of stuff. And sometimes, majority of the time, there was so much, so many things I couldn't control going on. I would recognize it was God, but in the midst of it, there's a little part of me, if I'm honest, that would go, not doing too bad here. And I would begin to look at the Lord's provision and think just for a second that I had something to do with it. This is where the children of Israel are giving credit to other gods for what God has provided for them. And God decides to destroy their faith in everything else by taking them on top of this once beautiful mountain that is now dry and barren. This is not some moment for God to merely prove His strength and show Israel their weakness compared to Him. It is a moment for God's people to realize that their faith has been misplaced. When we see the backstory and everything going on here, we understand that God's actions are speaking volumes to His people. Every Thing that he has done, every place he has said to gather, every mountain they're supposed to be on top of, everything dying on Mount Carmel, all of these things are different ways that God is speaking to his people to say, hey, you've wandered off and you think it's because of them. Things that you've made with your own hands, idols that you've made from elements that I have given you and you formed these elements into these idols you have submitted to these things and you've gotten full of yourself don't forget where this came from not because he doesn't look at it like i would hey don't forget which side of uh, the bread is buttered on for you don't bite the hand that feeds you sucker because it may not come back that's the human fleshly side of the reaction god's saying hey bring your faith back to me and not in yourself. He's telling them there's no sacred mountain, no level of earthly beauty, no amount of, uh, amount of human prosperity, no king or false god with man-made idols that isn't under the subjection of almighty God. I don't want you to answer this question right now, but I want to pose a question for you to consider later tonight and then during this week. Have we ever had a moment when we were truly humbled by the power and love of God? Have we ever stood in the middle of a scenario where we went, there is no way that had anything to do with me. That is the goodness and power and mercy and grace of God that is undeserved for me. And I am sitting here as someone who cannot earn it or pay anything back. And that, I don't know about you, but for me, that gratitude and humility descends upon me. 
in a way that's not embarrassing, but that makes me realize I'm loved. Have you had that moment? And if you have, has it been a while since we remembered that? Why ask the question? Because if we're going to do things God's way, it's going to require humility. Third and final point of the message tonight is this. Doing things God's way requires grace. Doing things God's way requires grace. First time I heard this story as a young child and as I grew up and even as I got into ministry, as I got older... I thought the purpose of this story was for God to showcase his power. He was going to show up and lay it down. He was going to take these puny little humans and remind them, hey, I'm the big man up here on the, on the block, and he's going to set them straight. And when I would read this story about Elijah, you know, mocking them, making fun of them, and there's no sound, and the, the, the gods aren't answering them, you know what I mean? This false god's not answering them. In my heart, I would go, yeah, get them, God. Show them who you are, rub their nose in it, those little suckers who have taken your money from your temple, just rub their nose right in it. Have you ever had a moment where you have tried to give somebody advice, like to do something in the right way, and they ignore you and do something else, the opposite of what you encourage them to do, and it falls apart just like you said it would? And none of you are like me, but I'll just, I'll just talk about me for a second. But in those moments I've experienced, I've been like this. Yeah? How'd that work out for you? Yeah, didn't want to listen to all that, did you? Nope. Mm-mm. I'd never say it out of my mouth. But in my heart, I was going, sucker. <clears throat> you know, just trip them one more time, God. Just, just, as they're walking back over here to repent to you, just trip them one more time. <clears throat> just remind them, this is not the right thing to do. <clears throat> and as I was getting into this scripture... God did something to me that um, he's done many times, but he also did in the middle of my study this week. It was almost as if the Bible became a reflection for me. And here's what I mean by that. I would love to read the story and be like, yeah, see what it is? You didn't listen to God, and you've been wandering off the path, and you are getting it, sucker. Yeah. That's what I want. But the truth is, is that when I took that attitude, that heart, and compared it to Scripture, I realized it was self-serving. See, we can't take Scripture and form it into the way to make ourselves feel better. We have to take Scripture... And our actions, our belief, and our lives, and go, this doesn't match up. And this week when I had this moment, I looked at this passage and said, this doesn't match up. There's something in me that wants my guy to win. Why? Why did I, why did I rejoice when that happened to Elijah? Because I wanted him to win because I'm on his team. And when my team wins, I look good. I've been telling you the whole time that this team is going to do this and this team is not going to fall apart. It's not going to, but no, you didn't listen to me. And here we are, you know, championship day. These guys are all winning. And when my team wins, I feel like, man, I'm on this side. I have won and I look good. 
And in those scenarios where I've given advice to people that they didn't, well, they didn't take, my honest assessment was, well, maybe next time you'll listen to me. I had not one thought of joy that they had found a way that ends in death and is now going to come back to God. That didn't cross my mind once. It was that they didn't listen to me. Isn't it funny how quickly selfish motives can slither their way into our thoughts and our heart and our actions and our beliefs? In that passage we read, 1 Kings 18, verse 36 and 37, God peels back through the words of Elijah exactly what is going on, and it has nothing to do with getting those guys back. And you should have listened to me. No, let's read it together. Verse 36. At the usual time for offering the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet walked up to the altar and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, prove today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. Prove that I have done all of this at your command. O Lord, answer me. Answer me so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have brought them back to yourself. How in the world did I miss that last phrase? God is showing us what His plan, His design really is. Matt, don't rub their nose in it. I'm trying to get their heart back here. And if I'm so busy looking at them going, didn't you, how come you didn't listen to me, sucker? Instead of me going, hey, I'm sorry you had to run down that road. I know where to take you to get healing. Because that never once ran across my mind. God's entire purpose was to bring the hearts of his people back to him. I never celebrated that part. I always celebrated the Elijah mocking them. I like the digs and the insults and the irony that these people are worshiping a man-made idol. I like winning the argument. I like the winning of the challenge. But we like the winning part of Elijah's showdown with the prophets of Baal because our carnal nature wants to be seen as right and powerful to others. But God has no need for the approval of man. He is the creator of all that is right and all power resides in him. There is no need for the best basketball player to ever live, Michael Jordan, to walk into a nursery with a bunch of three to four month old infants who can't walk, who can't speak, who can't crawl. All they do is sleep, eat, and use the bathroom in that order and sometimes in adverse order at the same time sometimes. There's no reason for him to walk into a nursery and take a basketball and dunk on them little infants. It'd make a good TikTok video, right? Like if we have millions of views, like what is going on here, right? It would be probably like a good 15 seconds of fame, right? It used to be 15 minutes, now it's 15 seconds. TikTok, thank you. Um, if someone did that and we were watching, what would we all do? We'd roll our eyes. That's a moron. Why is he doing this? He's, it doesn't make any sense. 
Why would we do that? Because there is absolutely no comparison between the skill and the athleticism of the greatest player to ever play and someone who is this fragile and weak and not knowledgeable about anything. In a, in a very small but similar way, this would be the same thing God would be doing to humanity if all he was trying to do was show up and flex. Remember who I am. That's what I want to do. And it's a revelation that there's part of my heart that still needs to be submitted and aligned to God. His purpose isn't to show these puny humans who I am his ultimate desire is to bring the hearts of the people back to him. If our perspective to those who are not serving God is fine, go do your own thing, man. God's going to show you just how stupid and crazy the, that you are and these ideas that you have are. And, um, you know, if that's our attitude to the people who are lost, then we're not showing the heart of our Heavenly Father the ones who are living in darkness. See, disciples of Christ are not to have a competitive attitude to those who are unsaved. We are to be an example of God's grace. In verses 39 and 40, this entire three and a half year ordeal finally comes to a head. Let's read it together. When all the people saw it, they fell face down to the ground and cried out, The Lord, He is God. Yes, the Lord is God. Then Elijah commanded, Seize all the prophets of Baal. Don't let a single one escape. So the people seized them all, and Elijah took them down to the Kishnan Valley and killed them there. One of the commentators I, I read and studied this week, he said that that line, You know, the Lord, He is God. Yes, Lord, He is God. If you literally translate it out to the detail, it says this, Jehovah is God. Jehovah, He is the God. Baal is not the God. Jehovah alone is the God of Israel. They did not cry out. He's the most powerful being in the universe, so you better do what He says or He's going to crush us. They recognize that Jehovah is God. The people of Israel have repented of their idol worship and their hearts have returned to Jehovah. Well, that's great. We could have stopped at verse 39 and said that. Why did you read verse 40 where he goes and kills everything? What's the purpose of killing these hundreds of false prophets? There's a great thing for us to pull out of this scripture and a principle we can apply to us today. The Lord is instructing his people to put to death anything and everything that we serve other than him. A similarity that we see in the character of God and his purpose between the Old Testament and the New Testament is this. Next line your notes. Repentance and salvation remain the goal of our Lord today. How do I know? 1 Timothy 
2, 1 through 4, the New Testament. Paul's talking to his disciple Timothy. I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. Ask God to help them, intercede on their behalf, and give thanks for them. Pray this way for kings and all who are in authority so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants everyone to be saved and understand the truth. Have anybody in your life who you look at and go, I'm not even bothering with that fool. Let him go down the path. Let her go down the path with whatever they want. If I want them to wander off and go get the penalty of their sin and disobedience, I am not reflecting the heart of my Savior who wants everyone unequivocally, no exceptions, everyone to be saved and understand the truth. Doing things God's way requires the three things we talked about today, endurance, humility, and grace. The grace that's required is first us remembering the grace we've been given. And when we walk down the road and we try to help people go the direction that God is asking for them and submit their life to the Lord and they don't do it, we keep an open door and an open hand to join them, gladly have them join back into the fold and reconcile with God. Endurance, humility, and grace. These aren't really qualities that are in wild abundance in our culture. You can see that exampled and proven in about 10 minutes if you just open up social media on your phones right now. There's not endurance. People are trying to get away from the moments they don't like. There's not humility. They want to be right. And there's not grace. Go do whatever you want then. I don't care. But if we're going to do things God's way and not our own way, we're going to have to endure there's some things we don't like. I have to remember that we have not done any of this on our own. God is the one who's orchestrated the steps of our life, and we need to remember the grace and be a dispenser of it to other people.